0: Hi, I'm Zach, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Craig and Pam. It's almost Valentine's Day, and it's almost President's Day. And you can probably guess what that means. We'll be talking about our love of all things executive power. Later in this episode, we'll be joined by Jane Hiley, a former C-SPAN teacher fellow in the AP Human Geography, AP United States Government and Politics, and AP Comparative Government and Politics teacher at Devon Preparatory School in Devon, Pennsylvania. She'll be sharing with us some of the great C-SPAN classroom resources that she's developed and uses in her classroom to teach about the executives of countries from across the globe. Specifically, she'll be focusing on the executives of the AP6 countries from the College Board's AP or Advanced Placement Comparative Government and Politics course, including those from the United Kingdom, China, Mexico, Russia, Nigeria, and Iran. But to get us started with our executive comparison and in celebration of the American President's Day, let's take just a moment to explore our nation's commander-in-chief. Reminiscent from the hit show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, a bit of brief review. The United States Constitution outlines three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches. But which branch is the strongest? And where does our president fit into all that? Let's get those answers from former U.S. Attorney General Edwin Meese.
1: The article one of the Constitution, which talked about the Congress, enumerated in Section 8 all the powers that Congress had. And the idea was that the real power was with Congress because they were the ones that made the laws, appropriated the money, and established what the government should do. Article 3 on the other end was the Supreme Court and the other courts that might be enacted by Congress to serve under it. And their job was simply to interpret the laws and as Alexander said, it was the weakest of the three branches because it had neither the power of the purse, which was Congress's power, or the power of the sword, which was the executive branch's power, but only the power of judgment. Now, we can. this is not a t- talk on the Supreme Court or the judiciary, uh, so we won't go on to whether uh, Alexander Hamilton was a good prophet or not by calling it the weakest branch. Uh, but, but in any event... The one thing that they didn't say much about, and if you look at Article 2, you'll you'll see, and that was the presidency. And what they said was a single line, essentially, and it said, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. Then it gave a certain number of things that that president would do, like receive ambassadors, appoint officials, and be commander in chief of the army. But it didn't really spell out the powers or the authority uh, as Uh, In fact, they did for Congress in, in Article 1.
0: As Mies alludes to, the U.S. Constitution appears to be vague in outlining the powers of the American presidency. Throughout our nation's history, the branches have grappled with this gray area. In a 2019 article from Harvard Law School, Aaron Peterson states, quote, As the United States has grown larger, more complex, and more powerful, so too have the powers that presidents wield." And while presidents today may hold far more power than they did when the Constitution was written, the powers of institutions that have the ability to curb them have also grown as well. End quote. So, as we head to our commercial break, take a brief moment to ponder the power and influence that the President of the United States holds. When we return, we'll be joined by teacher Jane Hiley, and we'll journey through a review of the powers and influence of executives from other countries across the world.
2: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
3: Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these Nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
4: As Zach mentioned in the introduction, joining us today is Jane Harley, a teacher at Devon Prep School in Pennsylvania, where she teaches social studies, including AP Comparative Government. Jane, thank you for taking the time to join us today.
3: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
4: In the AP Comparative Government and Politics course, as part of the program of study, students will learn about the governments and executive leadership of six specific countries, including the United Kingdom, China, Mexico, Russia, Nigeria, and Iran. Kicking off our exploration of those six countries, let's begin with the UK, which has seen some political turmoil over the past year, first with Boris Johnson stepping down, and then Liz Truss, who succeeded him as Conservative Party leader and Prime Minister, only to resign herself after just 44 days in office, making her the shortest serving Prime Minister. Just as the process of electing an executive differs from country to country, the removal of a leader within a parliamentary system such as the UK differs as well. So let's take a listen to a portion of a clip from C-SPAN's Prime Minister's Questions programme to get a window into the process, and then we'll circle back with you, Jane, to talk about it. Thank you, Mr Speaker. In Monday's confidence vote, the Prime Minister secured the support of just two out of Scotland's 59 MPs. That means out of the mass ranks of his Scottish Conservative colleagues... He got as much support as there are pandas in Edinburgh Zoo. <laughs> the Prime Minister is an intelligent man. He must know that position's untenable. And if he's not going to do the decent thing and resign as the Prime Minister, surely it's past time he wrote a letter of resignation to himself to stand down as the Minister for the Union. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. And the timetable will be announced next week. And I've today appointed a cabinet to serve, as I will, until a new leader is in place. We always hear from teachers about how students are fascinated by the footage from the British House of Commons. So uh, Jane, can you talk about the, the fusion of power between the executive and the legislative branches in the UK?
3: So the concept of fusion of power means that those two branches are intertwined uh, because that's the nature of the parliamentary system. And in the U.K., as well as other countries that use the parliamentary system, the chief executive is the prime minister. The Rishi Sunak, the current prime minister, is also a member of the British legislature in the House of Commons, the lower house. That means that Prime Minister Sunak is a member of the legislative body who represents a constituency, just like every other member of the lower house. But unlike those 649 ministers, Rishi Sunak is also the head of government, which is why he is prime. So I always tell my students, he is, in, he, was, he is one among many, but he is also first among equals as a legislator. But he's also the executive that leads that legislative body. So his party, the Conservative Party, has majority control in the House of Commons. And the party with majority control has also the privilege and authority to choose the head of government among their peers. And I, I have to say, I also love watching those weekly question times in the House of Commons. It is ruckus. It is cantankerous at times. It's nothing like what we would witness on the floor of the, or in the House uh, of, the, of the Senate in Washington. It's really fun.
2: Yeah, we always enjoy that, too. It's a very engaging program to watch. But moving along, our next step on our travels is to China to take a look at how their government functions. And to provide some context, we're going to play a brief clip from a 2018 C-SPAN Washington Journal program that features foreign policy reporter Bethany Allen Abrahamian, talking about the decision made at China's National People's Congress to eliminate presidential term limits. We'll listen to this. And when we come back, Jane, uh, could you discuss the significance of this change and how the lack of term limits in China compares to the UK? Last
3: month, uh, the National People's Congress, which is uh, China's rubber stamp legislature, uh, passed an amendment which would uh, get rid of term limits on, on the president of, of China. Um, and so that basically paved the way for Xi Jinping to be dictator for life, if he so desires, which he probably does. Now, this wasn't necessarily a shock. Um, this had been rumored for a couple of years. And uh, specifically in October, when there was the, the last you know major party conference, which happens every five years, Xi Jinping broke from precedent and did not establish uh, a successor. And so there was, you know, we, we, we didn't know who would be coming after him. And indeed, that's because there is no one coming after him. Okay, so the similarity is that both countries lack term limits. Margaret Thatcher, for example, served for 11 years as the first female prime minister in the UK, while Liz Truss, as Greg mentioned earlier, served for 44 days, which Unfortunately, was not as long as uh, the comparison to a head of lettuce, and there are tons of memes about that. I'm sure students and teachers will uh, can look that up and enjoy. President Xi Jinping, who's also the CCP's general secretary, has been in office since 2012. And one could also say that both countries do not hold elections for the heads of government. Uh, But the prime minister is elected by citizens through direct elections in the House of Commons and then voted in by his or her party to lead the entire legislative body. Now, the president of the People's Republic of China, however, is chosen by a small group of policymakers called the Politburo Standing Committee, which consists uh, currently of seven people, among whom is Xi Jinping. China's process of choosing the head of government is through a process called election and selection, meaning the National Party Congress, which is over 2,000 members, elects members to a smaller committee and smaller committees until you get to the Politburo of 25 members, who then select seven to nine members to the Politburo Standing Committee and within that body, and then very secret, uh, closed, locked door discussions, so the general secretary is selected, not elected. So as different as these two countries are, that's one more similarity, I guess you can say, for the UK and China in that their heads of government are also their party leaders.
2: Yeah, so this clip that we played can be found in a bell ringer that you created to use with your students when you were a C-SPAM fellow, uh, and you included in that resource free response questions, or FRQs, so that students can respond to those. Can you explain what those questions are and why you incorporated them into this resource?
3: Yeah, sure, but first let me explain by saying what they are not. So FRQs are not formal essays. They don't require uh, and set number of paragraphs they're also not research papers and they're also uh, honestly are not going to be the best most stunning writing students will do that they can send to you know essay contents contest and that's because FRQs are timed skill based and prescriptive and in AP Gov students will respond to four different types of FRQs very similar to actually to AP government that assess both skill and content understanding and my students practice writing each FRQ type throughout the year in advance of the AP exam in May. And I included one here so that a teacher can play the short clip in class and then have a discussion and then use the FRQ prompt either as an in-class activity or a sign-up for homework. Uh, It can be a formative assessment or a summative assessment. Uh, I mean, the the, the method that a teacher can go with it can be um, as as creative as a student, as, as a teacher would like. And the video clip serves as a stimulus to get the conversation going as like a bell ringer about the key course concepts, so in this case would be democratization, for example, and challenge students to think about how term limits can impact that process.
0: I just have to add, too, that those FRQs are perfect for teachers who might not be AP comparative government teachers as well, that uh, you, can, you can utilize them with that video-based stimulus to teach just a multitude of different topics, all available on our featured resources page. But um, getting back to our discussion about the AP6 countries, to our third country, uh, just across the southern border border of the United States lies Mexico. While it's also a federal presidential republic with democratic principles institutions like the United States, the country's political journey has been markedly different. Claremont McKenna College professor Roderick I. Camp now talks about a significant change in the year 2000. Is Mexico a stable democracy?
5: Mexico is a stable democracy, but it's a what I would describe as an electoral democracy in terms of... uh, it changed in 2000 with the election of a individual, Vicente Fox, from an opposition party, the National Action Party. The preceding party in control of the government, the PRI, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, had been in charge of the government for 71 years. So there were a lot of expectations generated by this new government and new president and Mexico was expecting to move from from what I would call this electoral democracy to what scholars like to describe as a consolidated democracy, basically meaning that you have achieved a certain level of transparency and accountability and a rule of law. So in those areas, Mexico still has a lot of work to accomplish.
0: So in the clip, Camp describes the country's shift from an electoral democracy to what he calls a consolidated democracy with increased transparency and accountability. So Jane, can you talk about the significance of the change in the year 2000 and what AP Comparative Government students need to know about it?
3: So Mexico is fascinating in that there's a before and after. And that turning point, point was that election of Vincent Fox Fox in 2000 during which the long-held dominance of the pre-party was broken when a candidate from a different party, the Pan Party, finally won. And I'm glad that the professor used the term consolidated democracy because that is another key term in AP ComGov. So when a country has built stable political institutions that allow political participation like voting or referendums and encourage competitive elections where the results actually matter to citizens and vigorously protect civil liberties, Uh, When you see those consistent pieces of evidence of all those features in a country, then you could say that a country that country is on a path toward democratic consolidation. I think of that term consolidated democracy as cheese or wine that's aged for a very long time and is now finally ready to enjoy.
0: And as a related follow up, can you describe some of the technical parameters of the Mexican executive, such as the impact of term limit uh, term length and limits?
3: Yeah, sure. So unlike the U.K. and Nigeria, the other two democratic regimes taught in AP ComGov, Mexico's executive serves as a single term of six years. So I tell my students that the lame duck clock starts running on day one as president in Mexico. And with the concept of term limits, there are pros and cons. And my students and I talk about that using clips like this.
0: And I guess in thinking about the lame duck clock and the current executive holder um, in the AP Comp Gov course, how much do students study the work of current executives? Or, in other words, what should they or shouldn't they be expected to know about um, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador or AMLO's presidency in Mexico?
3: Yeah. So the course and the exam itself are—they're not based on current events. Um, So something that happened in the last calendar year or even 18 months ago probably won't be assessed on the exam. Um, But it's also not a history class. So students should be relieved to know that they don't have to study why, for example, AMLO lost in two previous presidential runs. But it's extremely relevant for them to understand why he consolidated power with uh, some coalitions and finally won on his third run in 2018. The students are expected to know party and electoral systems and rules for each of the six countries because understanding those election rules, especially for electing executives, can help students understand the impact to democracy or in some cases a lack thereof. And my students and I just recently discussed Amlo's recall referendum from last April in which he asked citizens to vote on whether he should stay or leave and the fact that he even conducted such a referendum is quite unprecedented it's never been done and over 90 percent of voters said yes please stay in office and that's nothing short of the people's approval and affirmation of his presidency but the result of this referendum could be problematic for mexico's democracy in the new future when amlo sees the lame duck clock so to speak ticking closer to the expiration date of 2024 and he may want to stay in office past the constitutionally mandated six-year term because he can reflect back on last year's recall referendum. That said, "You guys said I'm doing well. That you want me to stay in office." So, being aware of some of some newsworthy developments like this about executives of each country gives my students the opportunity to show their depth of understanding of key concepts like political legitimacy and stability.
4: picking up on the political legitimacy and stability thread, Uh, we move on now to Russia to explore their federal presidential republic. And the ongoing Russo-Ukrainian war has provided a case study of sorts for studying the executive power of the Russian presidency, the office held by Vladimir Putin for all but four years since Christmas Eve in 1999. So next, we have a clip of former national coordinator for Open Russia, Vladimir Vladimirovich Karamuza, discussing the 2018 Russian presidential election. So let's listen to his remarks and we'll get your reaction, Jane, to talk about the election process in Russia, how Vladimir Putin has remained in power for so long, and potential future impact.
6: It's not difficult to win an election when your opponents are not actually on the ballot. And the defining feature of this so-called election yesterday is that there were two major opposition figures who were planning to run against Mr. Putin in 2018. One was Boris Nemtsov, the former Russian Deputy Prime Minister, the leader of the Democratic opposition in Russia, and the other was Alexei Navalny, the prominent Uh, anti-corruption activists who spent this past year campaigning all across the country and neither of them as we know were on the ballot yesterday. Boris Nemtsov because he was killed three years ago on the bridge right in front of the Kremlin Um, and Navalny because he was deliberately barred from running with a trumped up court decision that was already invalidated by the European Court of Human Rights by the way but such legal niceties have never stopped the Kremlin regime. So you know when the head of the regime selects his own opponents I again, would say that we probably should avoid calling that an election.
4: So, Jane, can you talk about the differences between presidential elections before and after the changes to the Constitution of the Russian Federation?
3: Yeah, so when Russians voted in the summer of 2020, uh, this was a national direct uh, vote, not an election, on many changes, over 50% of the changes to the 1993 Constitution, including a provision that allowed the sitting president, Vladimir Putin, to restart the clock on his time in office and be able to run again in 2024 if he so chose. And if elected, he can serve two terms of six years each, which would mean that he could potentially serve as president till 2036. So this moves Russia further into a consolidated authoritarian category since that 2020 vote by citizens was based on the people voting on all of these changes at once by a simple yes or no vote and not by a line item vote.
4: So as an AP comparative government teacher, I know you referenced earlier that the course itself does not focus on current events, but how do you bring complex current events like the war between Russia and the Ukraine into your classroom as you study these countries' systems of power and influence?
3: Yeah, this course lends itself so well to current events, which is both a blessing and a curse, honestly, because... I can comfortably rely that any headline from reputable news sources like c uh, about any of the six countries that we teach on any given day can be integrated into a lesson. But because these countries are constantly going through the revolving door of the 24-hour news cycle, sometimes I have to set aside a lesson that I had planned because, oh, my goodness, the prime minister just resigned or, oh, my goodness, look at all these protests erupting all over Tehran or China Uh, So with Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine, we talk about the big overarching concept uh, that would hopefully encourage and challenge my students and myself uh, to compare presidential and parliamentary and even semi-presidential systems, which is what Russia has. Uh, And when we discuss executives or heads of government, then we also consider the relationship that the executive has with other branches, and whether each branch is acting independently or subserviently to the executive branch. And we also talk about how a president like Putin can impact political legitimacy, state sovereignty, and government transparency. And those three concepts alone are fraught, like you said, with uh, complexity when you're considering Russia's invasion in Ukraine. And other explosive events, like the death of Masa Amini in Iran, or the draconian COVID lockdowns in China, both of which led to massive protests Put the focus on the executive and the relationship between regime type and policy making.
2: Okay, so in thinking about the, re, uh, the executive and uh, of heads of other government and the relationship it has with other branches, we're going to continue on our journey and stop over in Nigeria, which is a federal republic with both a national government with a federal capital territory and governments of its 36 states. So it has a president and a legislature composed of a House of Representatives and Senate, similar to the United States. So, Jane, is this a true democracy, and what should students know about it for this course?
3: Yes, it's a true democracy. Uh, It's a transitioning democracy, and it's very similar to Mexico. And my students find studying Nigeria really comforting because it's very similar in their government institutions to ours with a bicameral legislature, a president who can serve For up to two terms of four years each and can be impeached by the Senate. And just like Mexico, Nigeria's presidential elections are based on popular vote. Now, however, given the ethnic diversity of Nigeria's population, there's a unique rule that requires candidates to win 25% of two thirds of the states to win the presidency. There's a high threshold uh, for. A person to be elected democratically, but that means that the president, the candidate, has to have garnered at least some support, 25 percent, from 24 of the 36 states in Nigeria. So the winner, during his or her campaign, has to appeal to Nigerians from all kinds of ethnic, religious, and linguistic backgrounds, not just Nigerians in the north who are predominantly Muslim or Nigerians in the south where you would find more Christians. And by the way, that 25 percent rule upholds the principle of federal character, which is integral in maintaining national unity in Nigeria.
0: And with that, we're now at our last stop of our journey through the AP6 countries uh, in Iran. In our resource collection, we feature a lesson plan that provides an introduction to Iran's structure of government. And related to the last response that you just spoke about, Jane, about uh, Nigeria and the impact of religious diversity, um, the lesson about Iran features key vocab terms such as Ayatollah, cleric, Islam, religious democracy, and theocracy. So with that, can you discuss the powers and influence of Iran's executive and the role that religion plays in the country's form of government?
3: Yeah, so Iran stands out among the AP6 countries because it is a theocratic state, and the emphasis on religion is in the name. It's called the Islamic Republic of Iran. And when you pair theocracy to an authoritarian regime, then you have something entirely different form of government called dual rule or dual executive. There's the president, Ibrahim Raisi, who is the head of government, who is also actually, by the way, the former chief justice of the court in Iran, And then you have the supreme leader, the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who is not just the head of state, but really is the epicenter of all political and religious power, uh, because he's also the highest religious cleric in Iran. President Raisi has powers to enforce the law and form a cabinet and uh, head the bureaucracy and shape domestic and some foreign policies. But all of those powers can be challenged or limited by the supreme leader, And in fact, President Risi could not have been elected without the Supreme Leader, because in Iran, another government body called uh, the Guardian Council is involved. Um, So this 12-member body, six of whom are directly appointed, not elected by the Supreme Leader, vets all candidates for the presidency. So candidates whose positions and beliefs that are moderate or reform-minded are completely boxed out by citizens, but by the Uh, not by citizens, but by the Guardian Council, who basically takes marching orders from the Supreme Leader.
4: So, Jane, as a C-SPAN fellow, over the past two summers, you've worked closely with our team to develop an AP Comparative Government and Politics Resource Collection that's available on our C-SPAN Classroom Featured Resources site. For those listeners who may be interested in incorporating these resources into their curriculum, can you talk about the structure, content, and review materials that you've included on the site?
3: Yeah, so I saw that uh, C-SPAN class classroom already had plenty of lessons and bell ringers for each of the six countries taught in AP ComGov even before I became a fellow, uh, which is tremendous because it helps teachers who approach this course country by country just pick a country that they need a prompt or a lesson plan or a bell ringer uh, to just plug and play. About three years ago, College Board redesigned the course to be taught thematically and release an updated course exam description or ced with five thematic units and i should mention here that i'm no veteran in teaching this course uh, i've only been out of for three years now and i am still learning a lot um, but i fell headlong in love with the course and i wanted to improve my own content knowledge and when i noticed that there were no ced unit-based materials for ap comp Gov on the Uh, C-SPAN feature site, I jumped at the opportunity to create something that I would actually use in my own classroom. Uh, So even though teachers might think that C-SPAN lessons are only based on American history uh, or based on news uh, developing in the United States, there's so much on C-SPAN's video library that's global and comparative. Um, So I created bell ringers and FRQs, including FRQ4, the argument essay, quote-unquote essay, the one that presents the most challenge for my students, including my own, because I wanted more thematic prompts to practice writing FRQs, and the video clips that go along with each prompt can help deepen their understanding of both the key concepts and how they are manifested in our comparison of the six countries.
4: It's fantastic, and we really value the uh, the content you've helped develop on, on our site the last couple of years, Jane. Uh, for those who may be interested in the fellowship, we actually have the application on the uh, website at the moment. If you click on the Teacher Opportunities tab, you'll see the application and more information about that fellowship. Jane, I know you have to get back to class. We wanted to thank you again for your time today.
0: Well, thank you so much, guys. Whether you teach AP Comparative Government and Politics, U.S. Government, or U.S. History, the upcoming President's Day holiday offers a perfect opportunity to study the American executive and those who wield executive power and influence across the globe.
4: Once again, you'll find all of the resources that we highlighted in this episode and much more in our featured resources page at wwwc classroom. And if you'd ever like to connect with our team to learn more about what we have to offer to teachers and students, please email us anytime at educate at spanorg
2: And that's it for this week. Please remember to like and follow our podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss our next episode. Until then, thank you for joining us.